said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? So it was with great joy and humility that i was able to record the following interview with dr andrew weil andrew weil is the real life hawkeye pierce he did everything to check those boxes on the resume so that people would have to take him seriously no matter what he never took the shortcut he went to harvard he got his ba in botany for christ's sakes he because he loved plants. And then somehow, as we'll hear, he found his way into medical school at Harvard. After graduating from medical school at Harvard, one of the top programs in the country, certainly, he went into what is arguably the top residency program in the country at Mass General Hospital. Then he went to work at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Again, top flight place, top move career-wise, but Andy Weil is an outlaw. He is the most subversive, the most dangerous kind of outlaw because he insists on being taken seriously because he's so fucking smart. So he went to work at, at uh, the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, and he started doing research about marijuana, about first bringing double-blind experimentation into the research with marijuana, which which was standard in other parts of science, but drug research is so corrupted still to this day. See the, the controversy over MDMA uh, research done at uh, Johns Hopkins University a few years ago where the guy used amphetamines, mislabeled it as MDMA, but it was published in Science or Nature, one of the top mag, top journals. And, uh, the, you know, every newspaper in the world screamed about how MDMA, also known as ecstasy, was killing our brain cells. And uh, only a year or so later, when people pointed out that that wasn't MDMA at all that the guy was using, I think his name was Ricard, um, then there was a retraction. Did the retraction appear on the front page of the New York Times? Fuck no. Anyway, I'm getting distracted. So Andy Weil went to National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, started doing research, this is the early 70s, about um, marijuana and cognition. And one of the things he said was, wait a minute, every time people want to study how marijuana affects cognition, they do things like test uh, math problem uh, capacity or bullshit like that. Well, you know, do a bunch of multiplication while you're stoned. Well, he said, nobody hangs out and gets stoned and does a bunch of math problems, right? So why don't we look at the things that people are naturally drawn to do when they're stoned? So Andy Weil started looking at things like, how does a person's perception of pattern change when they're stoned? Are they better at picking up patterns or worse at it? How does their uh, color sensitivity affected by, by the use of marijuana? How is their ability to distinguish subtle changes in tone affected by marijuana? Because what do people do when they get stoned? They hang out, they listen to music, they look at art, they look at nature, they appreciate 
perception, right? It heightens perception for many people. So he said, let's look at those things. And what did he find? He found that marijuana enhanced those activities for many people. Exactly what stoners knew, but science hadn't even considered until that point. So it's just an example of where his head's at. He's written many books, The Natural Mind, The Marriage of the Sun and the Moon, From Chocolate to Morphine. His early books are about consciousness and about uh, how plants interact with consciousness. As you'll hear in this interview, one of his early mentors was Richard Evans Schultes, um, who was a seminal figure in, in the worlds of ethnobotany. In fact, he, I think, started the whole academic discipline of ethnobotany. Um, so in any case, Andy Weil is the real Hawkeye Pierce. Uh, Top flight doctor, top flight education, very hardworking, very serious intellect. Uh, where Hawkeye Pierce has a gin still out in the tent. Andrew Weil has peyote and psilocybin mushrooms and LSD and MDMA and other hallucinogens, psychedelics, um, entheogens psychotomimetics, call them what you will. Uh, the class of drugs that's often, that are often used, I should say almost always used in traditional cultures for educational and spiritual purposes. A class of substances that are considered by every society who's ever had access to them to be the greatest gifts of the gods. And yet in American society, we throw people in prison for using these non-addictive, largely non-toxic substances. Uh, strange, very strange. If you get caught with 100 hits of LSD in your pocket, you go to prison for more time under minimum mandatory sentencing guidelines than you do for second-degree murder. That tells us something. Anyway, on to our discussion with Andy Weil. My only regret is that it was the first podcast I recorded. New equipment, not used to using this stuff, not used to talking to a microphone. Um, so I was a little awkward. The questions didn't come as well as they, as smoothly as they could have. So I apologize for that, but, um, it happened when it happened, and I rushed out and got all the equipment as quickly as I could so that I could uh, record this podcast when, when we were visiting his place, which is on a beautiful little island off the coast of uh, British Columbia, uh, mainland British Columbia. Uh, lovely place, beautiful house. We were sitting in his large, spacious, sun-dappled dining room with a view of the sea, and a couple of uh, Rhodesian Ridgebacks running through the room every once in a while. Hope you enjoy the interview. Body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out? I'm incredibly honored to be here. And when I say here, I mean not only speaking with Andrew Weil, but in his lair, in his natural habitat, which is spectacular. Uh, uh, as you'll uh, listeners know, uh, a lot of the people I talk to on this podcast are not world famous. Uh, they're quirky and, and strange. And uh, so it's a real honor to speak with someone who's both quirky, strange and world famous, which is Dr. Andrew Weil. Um, 
I've already done a, an intro talking about your biography and stuff, so we don't really need to get into the, the well-known parts of your life. But I wanted to ask, let's take it way back, mm -hmm. right, to Philadelphia. One of the first things that people notice about you when they become familiar with your work is that you took a very unusual route into medicine. Yeah through botany. Right. So what I'm wondering is, how did that happen? You don't come from a family of scientists or no, not at all. much less My botanists. parents were shopkeepers in Philadelphia and sold ladies' hats, and I grew up in a row house, pretty disconnected from nature. What part of Philly were you from? Uh, northwest Philadelphia, an area called West Oak Lane that borders on Elkins Park. My dad's from Ridley Park. Ah, uh -huh. okay. Yeah, I know the Philadelphia area. was a nice place to grow up, and uh, mm. once I left, the hard labor went back. Um, uh, but, you know, I think uh, from an early age, I got from my mother a love of plants, which was something she got from her mother. Um, her mother really had a great green thumb. And um, so I think that that eventually led me to be a botany major. Hmm. Uh, I just was fascinated by plants, flowers, vegetables. I always wanted to grow things. And in my Philadelphia house, I had hardly any. I had a little plot of ground in the back. And I remember, you know, doing vegetable gardens out there and flowers. And I always dreamed about having a, a really big garden, which I now do. You now do. You yeah. live in a garden, the Garden of Eden. Uh, but now as for yeah. being a major in botany, I should yeah. say, uh, when I entered Harvard, um, I, I really had no idea what I wanted to do, and I was interested in too many things, and people always yelled at me because uh, I had too many right. diverse interests. Right. That was my next question, whether you knew you were headed toward medicine. No, I had no idea. You and didn't. I went into medicine really by default. Uh, for one thing, it was... I was interested in science. I wanted to understand human beings. Uh, it was during the Vietnam War, so oh. going to medical school was a way of deferring a uh, decision about that. Um, I had an intuition that having a medical degree would be useful to me. And I wanted a medic. I thought a medical education might be good, but I never pictured myself being a doctor. Hmm. At any rate, as a, at, when I entered Harvard College, I initially majored in linguistics. Uh, I was interested in how the language we speak influences how we see reality. Fascinating. But I couldn't study that at home. What, what year are we talking this about? This was 1960. 1960. So Vietnam was just starting to heat up yeah. a bit. Yeah. And yeah, the whole... The time I was in medical school, it was hot. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, my linguistic experience was, I just couldn't study the things that I wanted in the linguistics department at Harvard. They were into structural linguistics, which was mathematical uh, analysis of language. And this and, is pre-Chomsky? Yeah, the psycho, there was, psycholinguistics was just starting as a field. There was a guy at MIT named Roger Brown who was teaching it, but couldn't do it at Harvard. Mm. So after a semester of that, I transferred into psychology. And, uh, but psychology at Harvard then was totally B.F. Skinner and behaviorism. Behaviorism, right. And he was a, I fell under his spell for a while, but you know, my real interest was consciousness and I couldn't, the, the whole point of behaviorism was to explain behavior without any reference to right, consciousness. Right. So finally in frustration, I went into botany and, uh, I had found a, a, in the Harvard course catalog, there was a, a, a course stood out It's called plants and human affairs. And, uh, it was about economic botany, plants of economic importance, and you had to go register for it at the Harvard Botanical Museum. And when I went in to register, a guy came out of the building who was the first, I mean, I think he was a proto-hippie. He's the first man I saw with long hair. <laughs> and I thought, this is really interesting. You know? And well, uh, I'm sure he was up poking in the, the library, which had a great collection of books on psychoactive drugs. Uh -huh. Anyway, that yeah. course was taught by Dick Schultes, who wow. the fa father of modern uh, ethnobotany. And, and uh, I became his student. He was my mentor for a long time. I was on his faculty, 
for years. Was it hard to get close to him? Was he already well-known at that point? He was well-known in academic circles, right. but no, he was like, it was possible to have a very close relationship with him as a student. And, Fantastic. Uh, so anyway, that was that's really the luckiest decision that I made. I mean, yeah. I, I didn't know anybody else that was a botany major. So for people who aren't familiar with Dick Schulte's, the best book is probably One River by Wade, by Wade Davis. Davis right? Amazing book. Yeah. I, I love that book. But do you want to just say something about well, his importance Schultes as was, a scientist? You know, he was a, uh, he had, he did extensive studies in the New World tropics. He lived in continuously in the Amazon from 1939 to 1953, um, studying orchids. But in the course of doing that, he identified and studied uh, a lot of major psychedelic, psychoactive plants, and uh, was really known for that. And wasn't his dissertation on peyote? On peyote, right, yeah, yeah among the Kiowa Indians. Right, but he himself was not, uh, he, he didn't participate, he didn't well, use peyote. He, he did participate. Oh, he did? He did study that, yeah. Oh. He was, uh, you know, outwardly a very uh, uh, stuffy Harvard professor, but I think really he was uh, somebody that had, you know, uh, he definitely had a twinkle. And, right. Uh, and he inspired a lot of, um, you know, really great students and uh you know he sent me to south america and uh just woke up in me a great love of of ethnobotany and ethnopharmacology so so that really was a very lucky decision and it gave yeah. me a very different perspective in entering medical school right because, uh medical school was it was shocking to me how disconnected everything was from nature that uh, was it tough to move to go into medical school with a, a ba in botany no i mean i had all the scientific requirements it just was like a, very unusual and so I, you'd done the biology and yeah, the chemistry and, and the math stuff, and you right, did all right. that okay right. but you know it just was it, botany was a uh, what would, a very old-fashioned field you right know, that was relegated to the attic at that point and, right uh, people didn't major in it and i and you know, I've met a handful of people in medicine who studied botany. Despite uh, the fact that a that, huge amount of right. uh, the pharmaco yeah, pharmacopoeia exactly. comes and it, from. And it struck me that, you know, the, the lecturers that I had in my pharmacology course in the second year uh, often had no knowledge of the plant sources of the drugs that they were teaching about. Right. But I think that uh, perspective being grounded in the natural world uh, really made me look at everything I was learning in medical school differently. And uh, so that was certainly a, you know, one, you, you know, you said that I took a, a less traveled path. That was certainly one of the reasons. The other was that uh, from as early as I can remember, I was always fascinated by the mind and consciousness. I wanted to know what that was right. and how the mind affected the body. And uh, I remember reading a book on hypnosis when I was a teenager that just fascinated me. And, um, you know, I, I wanted, that was, I wanted to understand all that stuff. And it was very frustrating in medicine to find that, you know, that was not of interest to people. So here we are 50 years later. Have you yeah. understood it? Well, I think I have a better understanding than, than a lot of my colleagues. And, uh, yeah. I think the whole field of mind body medicine has, has come into its own. Yeah. Largely through your efforts. Well, I've certainly been one of the people that have helped yeah. do that. But it is, uh, you know, I think it is a very robust field now. And yeah, uh, but it was there was nothing to be studied about that when when I was in medical school. You know, looking at your career and even starting in your undergraduate days, there's a a sense that of a, a sort of fierce. Uh, a refusal to go with the herd. Yeah. 
Is that part of your personality, or were you I just following came, your passion? I think passions? I came into the world that way. And, oh, okay. Uh, and, I, and to their credit, I think my parents encouraged that, that. So you were an ornery little bastard as a kid? Yeah. Were you? <laughs> yeah. And, but they, I was very curious, and uh, yeah. they didn't snuff that out. They encouraged me to follow my passions and my curiosity wherever it led But me. you were a good student, obviously, yeah. to get into Harvard. Yeah. So yeah. You, you're willing to follow rules yeah, up in to order point. to get up what to you point. want. Right, right. right. Exactly. Well done. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the the most subversive thinkers are the ones who can slip through right. yeah, with a little bit of camouflage, yeah. I think. Yeah. So, okay, so Richard Evan Schulte's seminal figure in your life and also yeah. in, in bringing a, a different perspective to plants. And, and you were talking about the twinkle in his eye. There's a book of the photos that he took when yeah. he was in the Amazon. Yeah. Do you remember what yes. that's called? Um, I can't remember. Uh, I think you wrote, did you write landscape? the, I wrote a forward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. A beautiful photo. Beautiful. Yeah. And, like and lost you can world or something. The lost world. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's it. Right. Beautiful shots. And I remember one of him crouched sort of squatting on a rock with uh, a couple of native kids next yeah, yeah. to him. And, and you can, yeah. like the twinkle is really right. shining out yeah. of his eyes there. The other uh, mentor that I had um, in my Harvard days was a, psychiatrist named Norman Zinberg. Uh, it was a Freudian analyst um, mm. who was interested in uh, dr psychoactive drugs. I got him very interested in marijuana, and and he was my faculty advisor for the marijuana experiments that I did in, in my senior year of medical school. And he's one of the main people who um, really emphasized the concept of set and setting, that right. uh, that expectation and and environment really shape reactions to drugs, right? And I Which think people be, like Leary then right, exactly. sort of made very popular. Yeah, but yeah. I think that can be generalized to all sorts of things. You know, yeah. I think it's, and I would say one of the unifying themes of my work and interests is how internal reality affects external reality. You know, how what we have in our heads determines, influences how we perceive things, how we interpret our perceptions, how we experience mm. the world and reality. So, would you? That sort of leads into a, a religious question, spiritual. Would you consider yourself a Buddhist? Do you have a religious affiliation? I, I do not have any religious affiliation, and I make a very strong distinction between religion and spirituality. I sure. think that you know spirituality is of great interest to me, but religions mostly have to do with institutions and per perpetuating them. And yeah, I'm not power and that. Right. property. Um, uh, and of the spiritual traditions, I'd say the one that I'm most comfortable with is Buddhism. But religious Buddhism leaves me as cold as any other religion. Right. You know, it's dogma and ritual and, right. and belief in things that are right. you know, unprovable. Yeah, I ask because in, in the Buddhist tradition, there is a, an acknowledgement of how the internal state right. affects the, the, yeah. what we perceive. And I think, but I think Buddhism as a psychological tradition is right. a great interest. Right, I agree. Yeah, as a, as a sort of a lifestyle, right. it makes exactly. a lot of sense. But when it gets dogmatic, it's right. as bad as anything else. Although I do appreciate the Although fact... Although they don't generally go around killing people. That's what I was going to say. And <laughs> there's, there's no them, Vatican. Forcing them to convert. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to call yourself a Buddhist, go ahead. Right. Nobody's going right. to get pissed off about that. Yeah. Um, so Richard Evan Schultes and... and, and uh, Zinberg. Zinberg yeah. and bringing you into this world. I don't want to spend a lot of time with Leary because yeah. you've spoken about that elsewhere and people can can see that in, in videos and whatever. Um, but you mentioned the, the, let's see, Leary was teaching, you were, uh, an undergrad right. and you were, were you an editor or a writer? I was for the an Crimson? editor of the Harvard Crimson, the undergraduate right. newspaper. And so Leary was, this is the famous situation where Leary and, uh, Richard Alpert were, right. were 
providing psilocybin, was it, or LSD? Yeah, uh, it was psilocybin. Right. You know? And you heard about that, and you didn't like that. You, you well, that? It's a compl- that's a complicated issue. You know, that right. I, I, I was the main investigative reporter for an inquiry that the crimson did on the whole thing right uh the state of massachusetts was launching a criminal investigation against them harvard didn't want them on the faculty Uh, so it was already out when you got involved yeah Yeah. have you ever did you ever meet um aldous huxley no but i corresponded with him and i got a letter from him uh shortly before he died yeah, and his, in 62 at, or so he died. He died on the same day that Kennedy was assassinated. That's, that's right, 61. 63. 63, oh, okay. So, right. uh, but right. his reading his book, The Doors of Perception, which I think I did the summer before I, I entered Harvard, uh, that had a major influence on me. It was one of the things that awoke my interest in experimenting with mescaline and right. other psychedelics. I mentioned him because I think... A lot of people are familiar with the whole hallucinogenic movement in the 60s, sort of see Aldous Huxley on one side and Timothy Leary on the other, where Huxley was saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but Huxley was arguing that, that these substances were so powerful and so sacred and important that they should really be reserved for people who were ready for them right because they could be dangerous although they're not addictive so he envisioned a kind of priesthood you know right of shamans right that would uh dispense them and control them and leary wanted them for everybody leary just yeah thought the whole world would be better if everybody tripped the other uh i'd say polarity was between leary and um uh, Albert Hofmann, uh, a right. scientist who, in, who discovered, invented LSD, yeah. who I also knew. Um, you know, a very proper Swiss chemist, but also quite twinkly, who did a lot of self-experimentation. And uh, he, he felt that, that Leary had essentially done in psychedelic research, you know, that, that had so poisoned the atmosphere that it made it impossible for uh, these things to be studied in universities. You know, finally, that's changing again. Yeah. Thanks to to maps and our mutual yeah, friend Rick absolutely. Doblin yeah. and and other people and Julie Holland, yeah. people who are like you, extremely academically qualified who've who've put in the time. Who you know, Rick Doblin was at the Harvard Kennedy School yep. of Government, and Julie Holland is a psychiatrist, and Charles Grob and and lots of other yep. people who have really risked their careers, I would say, uh, to stand up and say. It's absurd that these substances are not available to a qualified practicing physician or psychologist or psychiatrist. Who was it that said psychiatry without hallucinogens is like (laughs) biology without a microscope? (laughs) I think maybe it was Terrence McKenna, someone like that. He said a lot of things. Um, So so it seems that from my perspective that uh, the politics has finally come around – you know, and not not to to get too uh, uh, cheesy here, but you really blazed the trail. I think when I look at people who 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 trod that path, who said, "I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to check every box on the curriculum that uh-huh. anybody could possibly have, and then I'm going to stand up and tell the truth and risk it all." You're the person I think of first in that line, and you know, Leary. From from my perspective, Leary was about ego. Mm-hmm. 
and and taking shortcuts and and his personal biography is very interesting for listeners i mean his wife committed suicide on his 40th birthday i think and i mean he he had a, a lot of tough tough things going on in his life so I, I don't mean to to be blaming him for anything or judging him but he did seem to be more about himself whereas you and the people who follow behind you seem to be more about bringing these very important substances and experiences back into an accessible place for for people because they are incredibly healing right. and they can be they they uh you know if correct me if i'm wrong but i believe every society that's ever had access to hallucinogens have considered them to be the greatest gift of the gods yeah and here we are throwing people in prison right right you get more prison time if you get caught with 100 hits of acid <laughs> than for second degree murder yeah. in the I mean, us that's nuts very irrational and uh it's crazy that we've denied ourselves the positive uses of those. Same with uh, cannabis. Hmm. Uh, you know that the medicinal properties there are great, and it's just and the safety is so great. It's foolish that we don't use that in medicine. So I think it, we are at a time when things are changing again. Yeah. Well, why? Maybe it's just time. Maybe it's a result of the uh, you know a new generation coming up that has is more comfortable with all of this. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. You can donate to the show at feralaudio.com. That's F-E-R-A-L, like a feral dog, audio.com. You can also use the tangentially speaking Amazon.com affiliate links for all your Amazon purchases. I get a kickback and it doesn't cost you anything. It just takes a little cut from Amazon's profit margin, which is... Good for the world and good for my Christopher Ryan College Fund. I think we're all still paying off our college from the 80s. Uh, check out the other shows on feralaudio.com while you're there, like uh, Conversations with Matt Dwyer and my personal favorite, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, which is off the hook week after week. You can subscribe on iTunes, leave us a review. Uh, the rankings will always help. And uh, stop by uh, sexadon.com and, and check out uh, the book, the interviews, videos, all the, all the stuff I've got up there. All right. Thanks. Back to the show. Oh, okay. So to follow up with the, uh, with the, the hallucinogens, do you think that, that hallucinogens have a place in, in development and education? Do you think they, they should even be included in an ideal educational curriculum? Is that even well, a possibility? I don't know. I don't, I'm, maybe. I mean, I, I think one of the questions that brings up is, is, is there an age below which it would not be appropriate for people to experiment with these? Good question. And I think the answer is probably yes. I don't know what that is. Yeah. But I think, you know, that... Uh, uh, taken too early in life, they may interfere with with normal development. Right. Um, I think that they can. I think they can be very useful tools, and I think the main caution is that they be used under the supervision of people who are qualified by their own experience to know how how best to use them and how to shape set and setting to produce positive experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Have you had psychic experiences yourself? Uh, psychic experience. Yeah. Well, I frequently well, paranormal. have... Paranormal. You know, I'm, I have a lot of experience of what I would call synchronicity, of either thinking of, of a thing and then meeting it, or thinking of a person and then they call. Um, and and I've 
I like to focus on that. And I think by focusing on that, it happens more frequently. Mm. And I find those experiences very reassuring. You know, they sort of, mm. they reveal a bit of the hidden connectedness out there. Yeah. And uh, so I have those kinds of experiences a lot and I make use of them. I, I'm very intuitive. And I think, uh, you know, I don't know whether you, this, you would call this psychic. I think by using intuition, I'm sometimes able to... Um, understand people and events and and predict them uh by by understanding them on a deep level and that may look like some kind of psychic ability so understanding I, I don't see, yeah i don't see ghosts i don't yeah. uh, you know i don't uh uh you know i don't have experiences with spirits or anything of that sort but but this sort of um you know I'd say synchronistic awareness and and what many people dismiss as coincidences. That's very important in my life. You know your your image of the the sun and the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, since I read that book, I have that's been like a touchstone right. for me. And it's funny. I, I bring that up to people. I, I've I've used it in classes. I've uh-huh, taught. Great. I, Good. You know, and and I I try to pass it to people as a gift. And Uh it's interesting to see how many people are so quick to dismiss that. Uh Uh, What I'm talking about, of course, is, which blew my mind when I first read it in your book, the the idea that the sun is many times the size of the moon. We we know all this information, but we we don't think about it. The moon is a fraction of the size of the earth, but the distance of the sun from the earth compared to the distance relative to the distance of the moon from the earth makes them appear to be pretty much the same size like within one percentage point depending what time of year it is that were slightly off there wouldn't be total eclipses of the sun right and here we are on the one planet where that's what happened so yes that's the one planet that happens the one planet with life right and and i've even I, i wrote to an astronomer um, asking if this were the case on other planets, or maybe I wrote to you and you had spoken to an astronomer and apparently from the surface of Jupiter, they can calculate all this and Uh it doesn't, you Uh know, even with their eight moons or whatever they've got, uh, or whatever exists on Jupiter, uh, this doesn't pertain. So there's no sort of, uh, mathematical necessity. There's, this isn't a, a, an, uh, uh, what's the word? A, uh, epiphenomenon of, yeah. of gravity or of no, no, planetary no. formation. It's, so Walt Whitman uh, talked about leaves of grass. Mm-hmm. And he, he, I remember he says something about how uh, a leaf of, of grass is like a handkerchief dropped by God so that we'll note his passing. <laughs> and I, I, I always like think right, of yeah, that yeah, absolutely. in terms of the sun and the moon. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of stuff like that out there in the world if you pay attention to it. You know, that's just remarkable yeah. and makes you aware that, you know, the specialness of things. Right. Uh, the other kinds of, ex- I have experiences that I've had are of what I would call subtle energies that uh, I've worked with a number of energy healers. And, uh, you know, I, I have uh, one woman who was extremely good that when she put her hands on you, it felt like motors and then, and then energy that would go through your whole body and not subtle. Is this Reiki? No, this was her own, the oh. woman who did her own form of, right. of energy, energy work. Um, but, you know, that's stuff that uh, regular science dismisses as being unreal. And right. to me, it's quite real. You know, it's yeah. obvious. Yeah, I mean, all you need to do is is go to an Aikido studio right. to see yeah. things that shouldn't be yeah, physically absolutely. possible. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Have you studied any martial arts? I haven't. I I've, 
I did dabbled a bunch when I was a kid. I did kung fu and then mm-hmm. karate. But then later, I, I when I started grad school, I was in a first class. Actually, it was about uh, addiction and drug abuse, and I I was going in there armed for bear, you yeah, know, yeah. thinking, okay, this guy's going to be spouting a bunch of bullshit, and I'm gonna right. it's going to be kind of a conflict. He was fantastic. He, huh. he was like he'd read all your work, and huh. you know, he had a very uh, holistic, comprehensive understanding. Anyway, he was talking about how a lot of the um, people who came to you as a psychologist would be coming against their will mm-hmm. because their wife or boss or the police or someone said, right. you get therapy or you're out of here. And he said, well, you can't resist that. You can't fight that. You have to find a way to use that energy to help the person and not let it mm-hmm. affect you personally. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, that sounds like Aikido, right? And he said, come talk to me after class. And I went up after class and he said, listen, I can't say this openly, but if you want to be a decent psychologist, you'll learn more from Aikido than you'll learn huh. in any grad school, including this one or any teacher, oh, including okay. me. Yeah. 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 Very, very interesting stuff. Anyway, um, uh, talking about these, these experiences, I wonder what you think of Jack Kevorkian and the right to die and euthanasia and all, all this sort of stuff, which is also moving i think you know the culture seems to be moving what do yeah. you think well over the years i've been asked by so many um older patients especially um would i help them would i be there to assist them i think this is such a strong need that people really don't want to be in situations where they're out of control and are unable to end their life if they want to um i think uh you have to credit kevorkian with raising this issue to you know, a level where there was really public discourse about it. I mean, you can argue about the methods that he went about doing that, but, you know, he's solely responsible for that, and it's very good to see that debate happening. Um, you know, a lot of this is 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 done anyway under the table. I mean, this is quite yeah. routine. I think the hospice movement in this country has been wonderful, a really good thing. But still, there are, there is a lot of uh, a lot of doctors who think their mission is to prolong life at all costs right and uh, sort of a warfare yeah. uh, approach to medicine yeah so I, I agree i think this is you know we're seeing things change somewhat what do you think and do you have an idea of what the best way to institutionalize this would be is there a, i mean because you know you you said it's a good thing that we're having this public discourse but having lived in europe a long time sometimes i i wonder whether it's better to just let things happen without the big discussion right you know which is sort of how it which happens how it, in exactly. spain yeah i mean you know as a, in in general in many situations uh patients who are you know terminal and in pain it's it is commonly done to increase doses of narcotic medications until breathing stops but and then that, that can get the doctor in trouble right because right. they're monitoring their use of opiates yeah um so that shouldn't be there I mean, yeah but I, I don't know. I agree. It may be better not to have all the discussion about it. And, you know, the big issue is, is, is do we need criteria for this? You know, that it, it, it's one thing if a person is in intractable pain or has an incurable illness. It's another if they're depressed, for example. Yeah. Yeah, although, well, I years ago when I first started grad school in San Francisco, I applied for a job as... Um, one of the people you would get on the phone if you called from the Golden Gate yeah, Bridge, yeah. suicide hotline yeah. kind of thing, which I guess is sort of common for grad students yeah. in psychology programs. 
And uh, I had a couple of interviews. It was a long time ago. I don't remember real clearly, but I remember the last interview was sort of with the, the boss. And he said to me, uh, one last question. Can you imagine a situation in which suicide would be an appropriate response? And I said, of course, lots of them. And he said, thanks. But <laughs> this see, isn't going to work right, out. Right. You know, so yeah. it's like what you said about doctors seeing like their job is to preserve life at any yeah. cost. And I've seen people in, in horrible situations where I think they would have been better off if they'd right. taken yeah. control. But the reason they didn't was an intense fear of death. Right. So do you have a sense of, do you have any personal sense of what to expect? Do you, do you? I think, I think the human mind is incapable of analyzing that one. I mean, I think death is the ultimate mystery. It's something that we're going to experience, but we can't understand it. Isn't it funny though, how we're terrified of what comes after life, but nobody talks about what came came before. before. Yeah. (laughs) You know, nobody says, thank God I got born. That was horrible. You know, it's a non-issue, and yet where yeah. we're going seems to be such a, a huge problem for people. I mean, maybe birth is the hard part and death is the easy part. I don't know. Maybe there's no one thing that happens. You know, Maybe there's multiple realities that right. are possible. You ever heard but, of Ian Stevenson? Yes, of course. Yeah, his work's very interesting. Fascinating, and I've read a lot of those case, case studies of kids that uh, spontaneously remember past lives. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And that certainly ties into what you're saying, that maybe different things happen to different yeah. people. Ian Stevenson, for listeners who aren't aware, is a psychiatry, right? He teaches in, at University of Virginia. Yep. I don't know. Is he yep. still alive? I think so. Good. He'll be yeah. back, if yeah. not, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but he's done a very scientifically sound studies of uh, reincarnation in Lebanon, Brazil, and India, I believe. And the U.S. And the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, fascinating stuff where he finds kids who are telling stories, three, four, five-year-old kids, about who they were in the previous life, where they lived. It was a village with a river and a brick factory, and they got hit by a bus riding a bike. And he he and his assistants, grad students, will find that town and figure out who the kid was and and the yeah, and often these stories memories match are up. then forgotten as the kid gets a little older yeah. a certain period and and often there the previous life there was a violent end to it yeah exactly yeah an accident yeah. or a murder yeah. or something like that and sometimes birthmarks correspond yeah. to the point of injury right of course, in India, all this is accepted as commonplace. In the U.S., it isn't. So, right. But yeah, it's fascinating. And, yeah. and I've always, I guess, been, I'm always interested in anomalies, you know, things that don't fit. Right. And how people deal with them. Right. Which gets us back to what you were saying at the very beginning about how language shapes thought yes. processes right. and cognition. And so culture, in this case, in a culture where a kid talking about something like that isn't considered absolutely nuts people are more likely to listen those cases are more likely to be uncovered and and so on that also ties in with uh, one of the main themes of my work in in healing and medicine is that uh uh, i'm fascinated by cases of spontaneous healing right and i think the more we focus on them the more they're likely to happen and that's why I want to right. draw people's attention to them. Right. Sort of like the way you focus on synchronistic yeah, events exactly. and that sort of brings more of them toward you. Yeah. Yeah. There's an interesting, there are ways of affecting the field of reality around us without getting into 
what I consider to be pure bullshit, like right. the secret or, you know, yeah, whatever, yeah. Paulo Coelho yes. crap. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've got a terrible Paulo Coelho story, which I, I won't bore you. Oh, do you? Yeah. Do you want to tell yours? Well, you know, the, his, the book that made him. The, the Alchemist, uh, yeah. Is lifted word for word from the Arabian Nights. It's an Arabian night. Oh, is it be straight up? Acknowledge that, but it, I, I thought it was the Odyssey. I thought no, he stole it from. It's the oldest night. story ever, yeah. right? It's the guy who goes out, you know, right. has adventures, and then finds what he's looking for right. way back where he started. But that one, it, it, Joseph it, it, Campbell, right? You know, but yeah. there is an Arabian night that's exact. Really exact. Oh, and it'd be okay if he acknowledged yeah. his source. Yeah, I I had a job for a while in Barcelona working for the biggest porn company in the <laughs> world. I was their in-house editor <laughs> and translator. And the woman who hired me uh, started sending me all these texts to translate. They had nothing to do with porn. They were all about some Brazilian who had been in prison, a political activist, and then he was a musician, a writer, I don't know, all this stuff. I was just translating it and sending it back to her and she, they paid me and I, I thought, this is strange. I was expecting, you know, porn stars and directors and sleazy crap. Uh, it, it turned out it was sleazy crap because it was all Paulo Cuello and she was using me to, to edit and translate these articles that she was then placing in magazines, uh-huh. right? She was his Serbian representative or uh-huh. something and Paulo Cuello's literary agent is in Barcelona. So that's, and, so the alchemist and all that uh-huh. uh, took place. Uh, the celebrations and the tenth uh-huh. year and the twentieth year were all in Barcelona. Anyway, long story, but I ended up sleeping with his girlfriend. <laughs> but I have to be careful about talking about that because she was married <laughs> to a a Serbian uh, gangster. Well, you wouldn't want him showing up. No, or Paulo for that <laughs> matter. But yeah, that's that's a story for another time. All right, so here's here's a question I've been wanting to ask you forever. Uh, a lot of your career, your, your later career is helping people find healthier ways to live. Do you sometimes feel like you're, you're trying to teach, you're trying to help, uh, fish living in a poisoned lake, how to live healthier? Do you, do you sometimes feel like, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we are living in a toxic world. Yeah. Uh, but I think that there's there's still a lot of things that you can do uh, to minimize, to protect yourself and minimize harm. You know, even if you're um, stuck in a big city with polluted air, you can spend time in parks where the air is better, for example. Uh, you can have plants in your house. You can have plants in yeah. your house. You yeah. can, so the things to the, that you can control, you want to exercise control over. Yeah. Do you feel... My next book, I think I mentioned to you, is going to be called Civilized to Death, unless it changes. Great. Uh, so you can sort of see where I'm going with that, yeah. right? And I, I feel like every every editor wants you to end with an uplifting chapter on how you you know you can take control and make yeah. it better. But some of these things are so structural. But, you know, the, the, what's what's most annoying is that uh, when society is structured in a way that makes it harder for for people to make better choices right uh, you know for example with food you know the, the government tells you to eat more fruits and vegetables but at the same time it's subsidizing 
right. corn and soy and right. wheat. And there's one of the reasons why uh, these very unhealthy ingredients like uh, refined soy oil and high fructose corn syrup are in all the junk foods. There's no subsidies for fruits and vegetables. Right. So, you know, the most expensive calories you can buy in a grocery store are fruits and vegetables, and they're out of the reach. Of and you can't even people. get them. Right. It, well, if in, you're in, on an Indian reservation, if you're in a inner city, neighborhood, yeah. you can't get them. Yeah. Uh, but all the junk food is available and right. cheap. So, you know, right. that's that that is very bad. And, yeah. But, you know, the only way those things are going to change is if there's a collective uh, increase of awareness about that. If people get angry enough, they could change the politics of it. Speaking of which, have you taken a public stand on Obamacare? And yeah, this I mean, movement? I was an early supporter of that. I think it's a small step in the right direction. Yeah. But it's incredibly discouraging to see how even that small step <laughs> provoked this kind of reaction that, it, yeah. you know, looked like it might not even get through yeah yeah uh, you know it's unconscionable that the richest country on earth can't guarantee basic health care to all of its citizens uh, yeah while paying much more money than right. countries that do exactly it's, and has the and has such terrible outcomes yeah the but the the real problem there is that this this incredibly dysfunctional health care system that we've got is generating rivers of money, and that's flowing into very few pockets. It's yeah. the big insurers and the big pharmaceutical companies and manufacturers of medical devices, yeah. and those uh, vested interests have total control of our legislators. Yeah. So it really doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter whether it's Democrats or Republicans. Right. It's, that system is in place, and the only way that's yeah. going to change is if there's a grassroots movement, you know, if enough people get angry enough to change it. Yeah. But... You know, yeah. you look at how effective the brainwashing is. You know, yeah. major, many, many people convinced that Obamacare is socialism. It's going to take away from them what they've got. And, yeah, and it's the people who have the least who seem to really buy into that. Right. It's it's an incredible yeah. mindfuck that, that's going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and what you're saying, what you're describing with the healthcare system, can also be applied to the military industrial complex. Absolutely. All these wars that have nothing yeah. to do with anything. It's just about making money. Right. You know. Yeah. Oh, let's not talk about <laughs> that. We'll get we'll get really depressed. Um, okay. Paleo diet. Yes. Okay, so I asked you about the paleo diet. diet. Well, the yeah. paleo diet might be a fad. We'll see. Yeah. And in its extreme form, I think it's rather silly. I mean, I yeah. know people eating raw meat and right. you know, and uh, exercising themselves to death. Um, I think the the essential uh, aim of it, though, of not eating refined and processed foods, that's the same kind of thing that I teach. Right. I think that's where all the trouble comes. Right. Um, I, I think a... You know, one of the big questions around grains, uh, you know, and the one of the principles of the paleo diet is to go back to pre-agricultural times and eat what hunter-gatherers would eat. Um, I, I think there's a lot of mischief that's come from grains and the way, you know, let alone the whole ecological consequences and economic consequences of that. But I think in the diet that the way we have handled grains has made them very unhealthy for us. Uh -huh. And most people really don't understand the difference between a whole grain and a pulverized grain. There's a huge difference between flour and products made from flour and eating a seed or a seed that's cracked into a few big pieces. Um, I think it's okay to eat uh, some whole, truly whole grains. I think that products made from flour are a huge problem. Um, I think the paleo diet is very down on sugar. The latest research makes sugar look very problematical for us, you know, that, that especially the fructose content, right. which our bodies can't handle. 
Um, one of the issues that I'm not so sure I agree with is a lot of the paleo people won't eat any legumes. Um, and I think they're, they can be very good sources of protein for mm. people, especially if they're, if people don't have animal foods. To right. Eat. Right. Uh, so I think, in, you know, I think that the, uh, the basic principles are not in its extreme form. I probably eat that way myself. You know, right. I eat mostly fish and vegetables. Right. Um, I, I don't eat a lot of fruit unless it's berries from my garden or things that are in season and really wonderful. Um, and I mostly I don't eat any refined or more processed food. Yeah, the Mediterranean diet it has a lot in common yeah, with the, the paleo. Yeah, I mean, I, I find the I, I agree with you. The the extremists make it silly. And even the idea that there is such a thing as a, a paleo, paleo diet. diet right. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of years, many different environments. And clearly, there has been some evolutionary change in the in the digestive system right. of people who've been digesting milk for a long yeah. time and, and uh, grains and, and yeah. so on. Uh, but what do you think about the the rise of uh, celiac disease and are these well, this things? Well, it's all real interesting. I, you know, uh, it's uh, these food allergies. Is that a is that real? There's a rise of allergy in general and a rise of asthma. And right. My guess is that has to do with general overload of human immune systems. The wheat stuff is very interesting. Mm. Mm-hmm. No, celiac disease is a well known disease entity. You can test for it. Weed allergy we can test for with skin testing. But now we have all these people who are gluten sensitive, and yeah. that's not testable. You know, this is a patient-driven diagnosis. Mm. Uh, so people come in saying they have headaches and itching and bloated, and they've heard that, you know, gluten's what's doing it, and you put them on a gluten-free diet, and they're remarkably better. But there's such a huge placebo effect with right. dietary change. It's very hard to interpret that. And uh, I, I made two trips to China in the past year, in China, gluten is served as a protein. You know, in any restaurant, you get sweet and sour gluten, gluten with black bean sauce. I asked a lot of people, gluten sensitivity is unknown there. People have never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> Same is true in Japan. But yeah, yeah. So that's very interesting. You know, wh- where is that coming from here? Yeah. You know, uh, now I've heard a few interesting explanations, and one of them, um, which I give some credence to I think you'll find fascinating. One is that we bred strains of wheat with higher and higher gluten content possible. Another is that until recently, bread was all made by a long sourdough fermentation that may change the chemistry of, of wheat. And then when instant yeast was introduced, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. So you know, bread may be chemically different than it was in the past. But here's a very interesting possibility, is it may have to do with gut flora and changes in gut flora. Hmm. And the rising incidence of cesarean delivery, which has now reached oh, a shocking right. level in our society. I think something like one in four or one in five births are right. now cesarean sections. Again, driven by profit, not right. medical not necessities. Medical yeah. When babies are born vaginally, the, uh, the microorganisms that they pick up that colonize the gut mm-hmm. come from the mother's vaginal tract from the birth right. canal and that establishes the gut floor for life right when babies are born by cesarean section the organisms they pick up come from the mother's skin which is a totally different population uh and in china the incidence of cesarean section is very low and breastfeeding very high right presumably. so it's po- yeah. that is a possibility and you know we're seeing more and more things about how gut floor yeah. really determine your re- your allergic responsiveness uh, yeah. So that's an interesting possibility. I, I think this gut flora is one of the the areas of medical research that I'm looking at most closely now. I, Good. I, you know, when I was in yeah. medical school, the idea of taking uh, acidophilus probiotics, yeah. that was something that, you know, 
food fattest did. Right. Uh, now this is like very accepted uh, in mainstream medicine. And not only for things like traveler's diarrhea and being on antibiotics, but, you know, we're finding that it's beneficial in things like ADHD and uh, uh, autism and, you know. Really? Yeah, really interesting, uh, wide-ranging effects of probiotics. I'm sure you've read about fecal transplants. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. that. Apparently, yeah. they work very well. I don't remember what the the disease is, but do you do you know what I'm talking about? Well, one is if the gut flora have been completely wiped out by uh, you know antibiotics. Right. Or, right. Yeah. There there was some something I read recently. There was there was a disease I can't remember what it was, but it it was chronic and, right. and there was no way of of really satisfactorily treating it. And it was a small study, half a dozen patients or so. Right. Um, I'm sure they'll be following up, but. Uh, they did fecal transplant from people who were feeling fine, and within a couple of days, the huh. condition completely resolved itself. Huh. And, and well, this is a whole—I'd say—the whole issue of gut flora probiotics. This has come into its own. Yeah. Okay. Now that leads directly to a question I've been wanting to talk to an esteemed physician yes. about, which is how human beings shit. Yeah. We shit wrong in the West. In terms of position. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people have argued that we should be squatting rather than sitting. Like Asian toilets. We've, right. Cassie and I have an Asian uh -huh. toilet in our house, uh -huh. and everyone in Spain thinks we're nuts. <laughs> and it was kind of an issue when we were renting our apartment. Uh, we had to find the right person, to, a traveler, you know. But once I had been in Asia, uh, coming back to the West uh -huh. just seems so backward. Well, Pardon I the mean, pun. It's not, you know, there is, there are serious articles written on that. Yeah, uh, sure. There, there's yeah. a whole book called The Big Necessity, which I've just finished reading. <laughs> uh -huh. It's quite interesting. Uh -huh. Yeah, about That'd be a hard one to get people to change. Well, I'm going to, there's going to be a chapter in this next book uh -huh. about, about how to take a shit properly <laughs> and give a shit, give a shit about taking a shit. Maybe <laughs> that'll, that'll be the, the title. Um, all right. So you don't, you don't have a particular... No. Uh, <laughs> no opinion about that. No. You don't give a shit about no. Uh, aquatic ape theory. Have you have you heard about that? Tell me. The aquatic ape theory is the idea. There is that there are uh, a, a whole slew of things that human beings don't share with other primates beyond the obvious and in intelligence and all that. Saltwater tears. Uh -huh. Subcutaneous fat. Uh -huh. um, huh. Uh, the, the large floating uh, breasts of the oh, female because right. of all the fat content in that. Um, the fact that you can take an infant human and drop him or her into water and right. they know not to breathe. Mm -hmm. You drop a chimp into water, they drown. Interesting. I didn't know that. So there are all these uh, um, oil uh, ducks on the shoulders and the, and the head and the back of the, you know, the face causing uh, acne and yeah. things like this. So the idea is that there was a period, I first read about this in a mm -hmm. Buckminster Fuller book. Mm -hmm. um, there was a period somewhere in the evolutionary past where humans were living in tidal areas, mm -hmm. or, you know, pre-humans, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the safest place to be was sort of in the warm water uh -huh. and we adapted to the aquatic environment in ways that other primates never did and now here's where it gets really funky and weird part of the lineage stayed in the water and became dolphins uh -huh. which is why dolphin brain structure is so similar to human and they're highly communicative and intelligent and all that and the other came back to the land and, and became... Uh, I never heard that one. Never heard of that. Uh, Elaine Morgan has okay. written the most about it. 
Um, my she, my daughter, who you know, uh, was born underwater. And oh, I, I there you go. Her, and that oh, you delivered a, her. Yeah, wow. Very, very sensible way to do birth. Was it in a bathtub? Uh, we rented a an inflatable tub uh, we had in the living room. Wow. And, uh, it, it was it was a a very non traumatic birth. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting how we make. Have you read a book called The Born to Run? Yes. Another example of how we take a natural biological activity mm-hmm. and make it traumatic, mm-hmm. right? But like learning to run yeah. wrong and then yeah. selling expensive shoes that yeah. partially yeah. compensate. Birth is another one. I, I, an ex-girlfriend of mine had a baby. She said it was one of the most pleasurable experiences uh-huh. she'd ever had. But everyone was trying to scare her, telling her how much it was going to hurt. Mm-hmm. She didn't have the baby underwater, but she mm-hmm. she didn't have a, a C-section either. Good. <laughs> Um, okay. Wrapping up any, we're, we're sitting here in, in, in Andrew Weil's dining room. And last night over dinner, he mentioned that, uh, uh, no, I can't remember his name. The Australian, uh, mega billionaire, well, Rupert Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch had, had been here. Um, any, any other stories that you can tell us about the, the well, famous? I have, and- I have a lot of interesting people that come through my space, some famous, some obscure and, but all, all interesting. I, yeah. I, I've always liked knowing a great diversity of people and, uh, you know, I'm open to anyone and I'm always interested to get other people's perspective on reality. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you've gotten, you've been blessed in that sense because a lot of interesting people want to meet you, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't have to be famous. No, just interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm evidence of that, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Fame. What, what, uh, what advice would you give to, to people who, if you, if you met someone who was, you know, about to to be in a, a big movie, and their career was about to take off as, as yours. And you wrote four or five books before yeah, you I mean, really I think, hit. You no, know, I, I was lucky in a way that um, my my celebrity came late in life, uh, right. so I was who I am. Yeah, I think it could be very damaging to somebody young. Yeah, uh, and our you know I have very mixed feelings about it. Our, our culture is so celebrity driven, and. Uh, you know, the degree of fame that I have has enabled me to do a lot of things that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. It's also been a pain in the ass. And uh, If you could have the money without the fame, would you do that? Because it's, it's, yeah, sure. the, what I really mean, enables you is more the money than the fame, right? No, it's not. It's, oh, really? No, as I said, our, our culture is celebrity-driven. Oh, uh, okay. And uh, it's both. But, you know, it's, it, you know I'm not a, I'm a, a public person. And yet, by nature, I think I'm uh, an introvert. And yeah. I may not look that way on the surface, but I think I am. And uh, so, you know, it's this thing I have to live with, and it cuts both ways. I would say for, for younger people, just to be very careful about that, how much it can change your life. Right. Like who you talk to and what sort yeah. of relationships you step away from right. and step into. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting. I've had just a tiny taste of it yeah. since our book came out, and and but you also see, and you've told me that you know you see that the kinds of things it draws, you know, you get both the positive and the negative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's an interesting, uh, certainly an interesting ride, and yeah. you've been on it. How old were you when? Is spontaneous healing? Spontaneous or, healing was the book that that. Uh, really changed you were on the cover of time and so that that was in uh you know i was probably in my um 
you know, I was already in my late 40s, early right. 50. So your personality had yeah, formed. So my personality was well formed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For better or worse. Yeah. All right. So uh, can you say a few words about what you're working on now? Uh, well, you know, I, I put a lot of work into the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. I want to make sure that's on a really solid footing. And we're, you know, we train lots of physicians and uh, we're about to embark on a whole new course of mind-body research, which is great. Um, in terms of writing, uh, I, I'm, I'm working on a book of memoirs, stories, not, not an autobiography, just stories from my life because I've got a lot of good stories. So oh, I like bad. telling stories and uh, it's kind of a natural form for me. So I'm just, Are you changing the names to protect the innocent? I haven't decided that yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a big decision. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you going to, uh, would there be a disclaimer at the beginning saying, this is how I remember it? It might not have happened this way? Or are you, no, you going I, for accuracy? I trust my memory. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Good. Yeah. Wow. Looking forward to that. Any idea when it'll come out? No. Um, I'm just slowly getting into it. So, wow. Don't feel any pressure about it. Yeah. Any any uh, teasers you want to leave us with here? Well, uh, I got lots of stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tried to convince you to join Dan Savage and me on stage telling sex stories. Uh, it, you, you seemed uninterested in that. No, I don't think that's that's not not what I want to focus on. Well, so what what the stories will be of what nature? Have you decided? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, they can be from you've my, got too many travels, for one book, I'm sure. Yeah. Magical experiences, healing stories, stories about drug experiences, adventures right. with plants, people, yeah, all sorts of things. So maybe sort of a revisiting the marriage of the sun and the moon in some ways. Which well, it's was, something in that genre, right? Uh, Travel, less yeah. theoretical. It yeah, was yeah. more, you know, right. practical, yeah, experimental, and personal, also. Yeah, yeah, great. Good. Good luck with that. Thank you very much for, for taking time for this. Said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time? About your reputation, trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you ever know said it for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we ever know for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's the big deal? If you wanna be free Say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms 
if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground